This is where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. This is the second of two episodes on How Climate Changes Me, a collection of professional and personal insights from graduate students in the humanities researching the impact of climate change on human culture. Climate change is a topic that science alone cannot fully address. But the humanities have a long history of looking at hard problems from multiple perspectives, so are well-suited to explore the human dimensions of the problem. In this two-part series, we'll hear graduate student voices from master's programs in literature and the environment and environmental journalism, exploring hard questions of mental health, climate grief, and the drive to find joy and creativity in the face of these trying times. These ideas were partly inspired by our conference at UM called Echo Melancholia, funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities entitled Reimagining Death. Community Conversations on Death, Dying, and Grief. We thank the NEH for their support. This episode features Madeline Madigar, a 2023 graduate of the Master's Program in Eco-Criticism, a concentration in the Master's of Literature program in English. Madeline headed this fall to the University of Oregon, where she has full funding to complete a PhD in English. She's on the podcast today to talk about petroleum, its hold on our society, and how literature can help us make sense of the slow apocalypse of petromodernity, a world dominated by petroleum. Throughout the episode, you'll hear snippets of her conversation with Amelia Liberatore, who produced this series. You'll also hear snippets of her talk at the Eco-Melancholia Conference, where she explored these themes in depth. Listeners can find more content from this conference at the website for UM's Humanities Institute with a link in the show notes. Welcome to Confluence, where the river of conversation still flows clear. Hello, my name is Amelia Liberator, and it's my pleasure to share my conversation with Madeline Madagar. Madeline's interests span many areas of literature and society, and I really enjoyed hearing how she draws connections across these themes of petroleum and apocalypse. Madeline, thanks so much for being with us today. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Madeline Madigar, she, her pronouns. I'm a graduating student in the literature department in eco-criticism and with a certificate in environmental ethics. Okay, eco-criticism, that's a new one for me. Can you say more about that? So the field kind of started out in the 90s, and it's really, I think, still really in its infancy in a lot of ways. But it's basically how is literature as that cultural expression really shaped by environmental studies and then the environment as a whole. It's also a lot more, I think, kind of groundbreaking theory work that's coming out on how are we living in this time and this age that's called the Anthropocene a lot. But should we even call that the Anthropocene? Gotcha. So this is a specific field within literature and cultural studies. Um, So how did you land in this field? 
I started work in a psychology lab, actually, that was identity and psychology. And one of the really great workers there, his name's Daniel Rosenfeld, and he's doing just really cool work on vegetarian studies, actually. And I said, wow, you know, I'm not vegetarian, but I'd started looking into kind of the ethics and then environmental impacts of of agriculture and meat. And then I started working with him and it just kind of clicked into place for me because we can look at it and we can be like, yeah, I'm an environmentalist maybe just bare bones industrial agriculture is really bad, but then why aren't we all giving up meat when we look at those facts? So um, I think that really started the ethical trajectory towards me with vegetarianism and veganism. And yeah, and and then that's been a really heavy focus that I'd like to try to stay involved with. I've shifted a little bit away in my current studies and in my thesis project, but animal studies is really still a great part of my interests. Tell me a little bit about your thesis work and, and sure. your focus is now. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So I'm working in the energy humanities, specifically in um, petroleum culture. So it's abbreviated to petrocultures. So that's then instead of our relationship with animals and the environment as a whole, it's specifically our relationship with petroleum. And then specifically in literature and pop culture, I'm looking at the ties that then have been between oil and monstrosity. So how has that appeared with so many different pieces of of cultural expression. How has that appeared in news? How has that appeared in uh, literature? You know, it's talked about a lot kind of, you know, they'll say like, oh, this monstrous oil spill, this everything is so coded in, in those words and that rhetoric of monstrosity. So I first started considering all this in a class with a professor here, Katie Kane. She has a great course that's Petromodernity and Culture. And she, and just really, I remember just sitting in that class and being like, wow, this really is a whole kind of the moment I had with, with vegetarianism and veganism. And I thought about that with, with petroleum and, and how much that's just as pervasive to the current society as our other interactions with the environment, really. So it's just really incredible and horrifying in a lot of ways. And we think of it not just as as the gasoline and and that transportation and that fuel and the energy sector, but it's also so much of of how we have plastics and polyesters and all these byproducts and wow, all these things are actually like petroleum byproducts. And I had no idea of fertilizers and nail polish and glitter and it's just wow, the pervasiveness of this is, is really astounding. We're choosing to put in petromodernity as this label for this moment we're living in. And it's just that so much of the modern world is based on petroleum and fossil fuels. So that's my current work. Great. Thanks so much for summarizing those concepts. You presented at a conference titled Eco-Melancholia at UM in May 2023. And in your presentation, you started to peel back some layers on how our dependency on petroleum plays a key role in ideas about the apocalypse. So let's listen to some of your presentation now. Well, apocalyptic narratives, including environmental apocalypses, are often represented as one all-encompassing event. These representations ignored the endings of the world that have already taken place for countless people historically and in the present moment. The action of numerous apocalypses, many intertwined with the complex effects of colonialism, is more consistent with what Rob Nixon terms slow violence, or, quote, a violence that occurs gradually and out of sight a violence of delayed destruction that is dispersed across time and space, nutritional violence that is typically not viewed as violence at all. I want to direct our focus to one specific cause of globalized slow violence, that is petrocapitalism. Gabriela Vivaldia defines petrocapitalism as, quote, a capitalism that hinges on the production, exchange, and consumption of petroleum. Petrocapitalism is central to the development of today's society. 
As a core commodity for contemporary society, petroleum defines not only global markets, but also many aspects of our culture and socio-political landscape. Mucked up in petrocapitalism, the planet faces a nearing turning point in our relations with fossil fuels and oil is the cause for much anxiety. As most of us know, petroleum is a non-renewable resource, which means, of course, that it has finite reserves available. While estimates fluctuate and are very difficult to calculate, several accounts estimate that there remains about 50 years of oil left to be extracted based on proven reserves. These numbers may stretch further in reality, and technological and industrial advancements may increase the oil available to be extracted. However, it's becoming harder to deny that the age of easily accessible oil reserves has ended, and we're in a time of what Michael T. Clare calls tough oil. And as we collectively stand, we are in no way prepared to rapidly shift away from the totality of petrocapitalism without consequence. This is something that really stood out to me during your presentation, this concept of measuring how long oil reserves might last. And as you say, we seem pretty unprepared for a future without oil, without gasoline, without so many of these petroleum products. Can you speak to that? You know, how do, how do we get there? Sure, the gap. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew the answer on how we're going to get there. I think that that's really kind of the energy humanities petroculture field right now is to say where we are and then you know i agree that's where we want to be we want to stop having our cars with fossil fuels and petroleum we want to stop having petroleum powering our homes and we want to stop the plastic and the waste but then how now that we're in this situation how do we get there i think we need to focus on people who are being directly harmed by these industries first and and then support them and and raise up marginalized voices as well um i want to look towards native communities especially as a source of that activism as um there's a great great swell during the no dapple um, with the pipeline. Right. I also found that hugely inspiring. I'll just give a brief recap of that action here. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe in North Dakota led protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline between 2015 and 2017. That movement is often referred to as no dapple, and it was a historic instance of indigenous and non-indigenous people coming together to protect sacred land and water. Thousands of people, including members of hundreds of Native American tribes, gathered for months to protest the construction of this pipeline. The protests were eventually cleared by force in late 2016 and early 2017, and today the Dakota Access Pipeline runs from North Dakota to Illinois and transports three-quarters of a million barrels of oil every day. Now, I'd like to turn towards the mental health aspects of the work that you're doing, because a lot of what you're saying about petrocapitalism are obvious and not so obvious dependency on oil, it's really troubling. I mean, here at UM, we hear terms like eco grief, eco emotions, eco melancholia. So let's listen to another portion of your presentation when you talk about eco melancholia specifically. Engaging with the eco melancholia we might feel about the damaging effects and pervasiveness of petrocapitalism is difficult but necessary. We are to work within and against these feelings that we will doubtlessly encounter in environmental advocacy and scholarship as we attempt to halt planetary destruction. Our eco-melancholia surrounding petroleum may involve the apocalyptic, but shifting how we discuss and depict the atrocities of petrocapitalism to better reflect the true slow violence of industrial oil destruction and climate change may support a more accurate understanding of the effects and feelings of current petrocultures. Instead of thinking of the apocalypse as a singular catastrophic collapse of the physical planet, how might we reconceptualize slow apocalypse, those that communities have and continue to experience in the forms of slow violence, especially those at the cost of petrocapital? 
How can we grasp the feelings and experiences of living with ongoing perils that are unequally causing harm around the globe and threatening to exacerbate already precarious livelihoods? Later in your presentation, you suggested that this concept of haunting may be useful for us to put petroleum and capitalism in perspective, especially here in the relatively wealthy global north. Let's keep listening to your explanation of that. Things that haunt us stick with us and make it difficult to forget or move past into a future no longer influences by those ghosts. This makes haunting applicable for both melancholy and petroleum. Spectres of oil loom over the shape and trajectory of modernity as it remains fueled by and in service to the continued reliance on petroleum. The editors of a recent volume, Dark Scenes from Damaged Earth, the Gothic Anthropocene, argue that the slow changes to the planet in the Anthropocene are most acutely beginning to be felt as a haunting in our privileged global north. Quote, it can be argued that affluent communities, most located in the global north, encountered the Anthropocene not as physical violence, but as a haunting, uncanny presence, a ghost that rises out of the global landscape. The Anthropocene haunts everyday objects and practices, cars, air-conditioned houses, gardens, airplanes, dinners, trips to the beach. It serves to point out that fossil fuels are a central, if not the foremost actant in these examples of the Anthropocene haunting that were just listed through the monstrous progeny of gasoline, refrigerants, fertilizers, jet fuel, and single-use plastics. In her work on eco-melancholia, Catriona Sandilands captures the importance of haunted melancholy. Quote, in a context in which there are no adequate cultural relations to acknowledge death, melancholia is a form of preservation of life, a life that is already gone, but whose ghost propels a changed understanding of the present. Our increasing knowledge of the unsettlingly vast impacts of the anthropogenic emissions, pollution, and waste, among other indications of planetary transformation, continue to haunt and disturb us. Our concerns of these changes manifest in the apocalyptic, and its depictions of the environmental apocalypse proliferate in literature, film, and popular media. Analyzing the feelings surrounding these events becomes ever more crucial. However, it matters how we depict environmental apocalypse narratives in order to effectively address the real-world distractions taking place. Seeing global warming and other injustices of petrocapitalism as not just singular apocalyptic events, but refigured instead as slow effects that are already taking form and impacting communities and places leaves lingering questions. What are we to do in order to live in and address the multiplicity of climate change, petrocapital, and slow apocalypses? What resistance do we undertake against a petrocapital system to cease this violence? Investigating these questions through haunting and other creative means is therefore essential to creating a dialogue around how we can and should continue to exist among the rumblings of the apocalypse. Thank you. So Madeline, you are one of two graduate students at UM in the eco-criticism field. How on earth do you manage to think about and write about these topics so intensely? Can you, can you share a little about your self-care practices um, or some things that have been helpful for you uh, during your time here? Um, it's been helpful talking with other people studying this in my department and the philosophy department. We were just having this conversation the other day of, wow, I mean, we just engage with that so much. How do we continue to stick with that heaviness, you know? And and I think it is almost almost to the verge of an overwhelming feeling. But then you you have to, I think, continue to re-engage in it. Maybe it maybe it's a poor way to do it. Maybe it's a poor way to then have the academic involvement to push you back in. But in a way, it is like I'll read 
some new book or or a theory that's out there and and people that are still in this who are a lot smarter than me right now and I'm like okay you know we're we're still trying to give it this push and give it this go in this realm you know maybe maybe we're just going to keep trying one thing I've been doing recently it's kind of silly um I've been watching a lot of original series Pokemon anime which is really funny but there's a lot in there that's really hopeful in the connections between humans and then non-humans, you know, they're represented as Pokemon, but then it's also the overall environment. There's a lot of that kind of Japanese environmental philosophy that keeps recurring. That's been really interesting now returning to that. Of course, I'm a lot older than when I watched it when I was like five, but it's been really uplifting to see that. And it's not a utopia there, but so much of it is kind of a more utopian situation than what we have. Cities are depicted in, in the show as, as flourishing and having all these different, you know, animal Pokemon species there, along with humans who are respecting that. And there's just that constant dialogue of, of how we're supposed to be living with the non-human others and how we're supposed to be respecting the environment around it. You know, I didn't grow up watching Pokemon, but I totally get what you're saying about animated shows and that near utopian view of society. <laughs> it seems like a really important antidote to visions of the apocalypse, um, or as you say, many slow apocalypses. Does it make you wonder if we even need to keep referencing these apocalyptic narratives? I think there's a place for that apocalyptic and that dystopian but even you know, a comment got made on a panel I was on. Someone was trying to have a whole class where he was including only like utopian films. And he says, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't complete this list because we don't have so many of these utopian things to look for. And I think that that's a really essential thing um, that's had this long tradition that's kind of been buried of this utopianism. But what do we want to strive for? And especially in my work, like well, how do we want our post-oil future to be? What steps do we want to do to make it that way? We have a response for helping to see what type of life that's going to be. So are we going to have, which, no, hey, I love rats and cockroaches. I'm, I'm weird, I like all things. But is it going to be a world that's only rats and cockroaches? Or are we going to have still some of the remaining biodiversity that will make it a flourishing biosphere? Well, I certainly hope there is more than rats and cockroaches in the future as well. Uh, Madeline, thank you so much for sharing your work with us on Confluence. I hear you're pursuing a doctorate at the University of Oregon this fall. So congratulations and good luck on the next part of your journey. If you like what you've heard, you've got a team of talented graduate students to thank. Produced and edited by Amelia Liberator from the MA program in journalism. Edited by Kathleen Shannon from the MA program in journalism. Sound designed by Kate Lloyd from the MFA program in media arts. Jacob Christensen from the MFA program in theater edits the website and works the social media magic. From Pride and Prejudice. What? <laughs>